buddy, 289 of Breaking Case Without Conviction. Or maybe what I should say, Barry Rose, is I'm feeling like I'm funky like a monkey, daddy. And so I'm going to throw it to my, my man, uh, the Russian nightmare, Nikita Koloff. Magnetier. Which, as I uh, said before we started, much like uh, Untergleben Gloppen Globen from Def Leppard. I'm not sure that's an actual phrase, Barry, but uh, I'd like to go on record as just saying I just and I hope that everybody will actually you don't rewind this. Just go back a little bit. That was the absolute worst Nikita Koloff impression (laughs) in the history of mankind. It deserves repeated listenings to it was that bad. I, I think what we should offer up to the group, Barry is I think what we should offer up is have everyone post a 10-second video clip of themselves and post it in the group doing a Nikita Koloff impression. What say you? (laughs) Absolutely. Let's see see if anybody can even come as close to as horrible as I just was. I don't know if it's possible. (laughs) Oh, I cry for Magnantier. Yeah. I want to hear Robert Gudgeon in Australia. Do. That's, <laughs> that's what I want to hear, Jeff. I don't know about you. Uh, so anyway, on this particular episode of Breaking Cafe with Valdron and Barry, Barry, we're going to go someplace that we have never been before. No, not that place uh, that uh, Barry told me he went last weekend, but that's another story for another no, time. Another place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but we are going to Puerto Rico. I have to roll my R's just like the announcers on ESPN. Whenever someone Spanish does anything, oh, it's it's one soto, and they have to do the uh, Spanish inflection. It's really kind of annoying. But we're going to Puerto Rico because, as we mentioned last episode, we, of course, lost Butch Miller, one of these sheep herders, not the bushwhackers, the sheep herders, or the Kiwis. I will accept that, too. We're going to Puerto Rico for a match between the sheep herders and Carlitos Colon. No, not Carlitos. Carlos Colon, E Invader One. I want to give a special shout out to our friend Juan Salas Rodriguez for sending us a, a video. Jeffrey, Jeffrey. Yes, Jesus, yes, sir. Jesus Salas Rodriguez. What did I say? You said Juan. Ahem. Jesus Salas Rodriguez. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> so anyway, I apologize for that. I apologize for that, Juan. <laughs> Juan was nice enough. To send me a clip where he basically gave the context of the feud, what was happening uh, that led to this situation. Because I have to tell you, Barry Rose, in 289 freaking episodes. Wow. Have you ever seen a finish to a match that was more batshit crazy than the one we're going to talk about today? No, and I got to say, too, I actually went back and I watched it again. And look, the match is what the match is, and it's a, it's a great match. I don't want to – but the you're right. That may be the most batshit crazy – and I want to I want to tag that along with maybe the most dangerous ending to a match I have ever seen. A lot of guts with the sheep herders to to do what they did. This is incredible. This, I've said this numerous times. Look, we're we're talking about this match already, right? This the last five minutes of this match. Oh my god. Yes, and, and we will we will get into a further discussion of that. Uh, besides everything else, we are going to be talking, oh, Barry, a little movie talk as we're doing the top ten movie monsters of each oh. decade. So as we go, and we're going back, Barry, 100 friggin' years. Do you get this kind of shit anywhere else on the Arcadian Network? No. Okay, so what we're going to do is, like, we start off in the 20s with Nosferatu. Uh, we're going into the 30s, 40s. Which decade produced the best movie monster? Now, of course, 
there are some people that can discuss uh, some of the films selected. Oh, this was this really a monster. I mean, you can have that discussion, but I think it makes for uh, interesting talk. I'm sure people will have uh, their own particular views. Someone's going to get butt hurt that their favorite movie isn't on there, but it is what it is. Before we get to all that, Barry, I do want to mention a couple of things. Have been in contact recently. Uh, for those of you here in the States, uh, you are probably well aware. Barry, I'm sure you have uh, been following it as I have been. The friggin' tr- the monsoon that hit South Florida over the last few days at the time of this recording. Barry, in a 24-hour period, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the downtown area where I used to freaking work, had like 26, uh, 26 inches of rain. Uh, it's fucking unbelievable. Hurricanes don't produce that volume of rain. I reached out to my boy Flaherty. He said that he's lived in his place for 35 years and has never had water actually coming into his apartment. I talked to our boy Greg Good. Uh, as it happened, they were having one of the dinners. <clears throat> I remember those, by the way, Barry. Uh, and anyway, uh, uh, Brett Wayne Sawyer, huge get for the guy that books the event. That's all <laughs> I'm going to say. Uh, not to disparage anybody there in the group. Jeff, uh, I have Brett Wayne Sawyer stories. <laughs> See, now that's your, that's your Juan Salas Rodriguez uh, there it is. Yeah, which I do every episode anyways. But I have got, uh, and maybe at some point with 11 episodes after this one left, Maybe we could break out uh, Brett Wayne Sawyer stories and maybe even get a guest or two that has – there are people within the business that we have had on this show with – I'm not going to out them. I'll wait till uh, I speak with them. But we have had people who dealt with Brett Wayne Sawyer that both – that have dealt with people in wrestling for decades will tell you he's the worst person they may have ever dealt. So that realize how bar how how high up the bar has just been set with that. I will make that call and let's see if we can get somebody on this podcast. Okay, that's for a future episode. But getting back to what I was discussing, so they have this event planned. Uh, Greg lives out in uh, the western part of Broward County. He said he he's coming in uh, to. Uh, to where they have the dinners, of course, the greatest restaurant in the history of restaurants. Not going to get involved in there. And, and so he comes over the uh, the overpass that goes over I-95, coming into Fort Lauderdale off of 84, and he's like, okay, I'm doing well, da-da-da-da, some rain, but that's about it. And then as he gets to the top of the overpass, it's dead stop. And he says, I'm like, what the hell? He goes, it's raining, I'm looking. And then he sees that the reason it's a dead stop is because – the road is completely flooded over. So, of course, immediately uh, everyone starts trying to make all the different back streets, side streets, you know, around streets that they can get through. And it took him like an hour to get down to uh, Las Olas or something like that. And he gets down there. I'm sure the uh, the host uh, or the, the booker for the event was probably not happy that he might have been three minutes late because he likes to have everything automated in a particular order. Don't get me started on that person. Uh, anyway, so they get down there and they get a, he gets a phone call. Oh, no, wait a minute. We're changing the location. We're not going to that place because uh, they're flooded out. And so they change it to a different restaurant in the northern part of the county. Uh, and uh, then, of course, he has to circumnavigate, uh, excellent use of the word circumnavigate, Barry, I know you're impressed, uh, to get to the new restaurant in the northern part of the county. It takes him like another 45 minutes to get there. They have the dinner, okay? 
I'll just say it wasn't a super uh, fancy restaurant like the original one. It was a chain restaurant, Barry, which I just find fucking Ooh, hilarious. A chain. Yes, uh, I'll just say a, a chain. It's a rib joint, uh, uh, smoky something. But anyway, so, smoky bone. I didn't say the name, but anyway. So what? Low level, is, low level yeah. chain too. In a well, sense, well, you know. So uh, then <laughs> he's got to get back to his home. His wife, unfortunately. Uh, is not not even home. She's not in the country because, unfortunately, her mother passed. So she had to wow. go to her home country to to you know attend to her mom's uh, funeral and wake and et cetera, et cetera. And so he's going back home. As he makes his way back home, he's on ninety five. So there, of course, naturally ninety five. There's never work not being done on i ninety five, right? And so they've got the uh, you know like the uh, the bobbed barricades, the barrels and stuff like that. It's rained so much that the barrels are now floating in the middle of 95, okay? So people, he says, are are trying to navigate 95, and they're following the barrels, which aren't on the road. They're floating. And so people are going off the road, and he says it was absolutely nuts. He gets home, and, you know, finally, uh, I don't know how long uh, afterwards, gets home, and his young daughter has a fever and he's got to take her to the Cleveland clinic. He gets back home at like six 30 in the morning. Poor Greg. So, uh, especially at his, uh, very advanced age, I felt very bad for him. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're thinking about all our friends. I know, uh, so many different facilities. I, I saw something that there were, uh, some kind of crazy number, like, I don't know, 10,000 abandoned cars just in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, because, and, and mind you, this was not a hurricane, not a tropical storm. This was a rainstorm where basically the weather system just planted itself right over top of Broward County and decided we're just going to take a big old fucking whiz right over the county. And, uh, wow, Barry, it was crazy. Yeah. And, and you know, when I, I was reading about this and you had mentioned about Flaherty and I think, he, right, he had posted something about it. And the first thing in my head is you and I, we spent decades in South Florida. I was born and raised in Florida. I've been through multiple hurricanes. You and I were in a fucking monsoon driving to Ocala that I bring up at least once a year, uh, going to the, the funk house. And, uh, we've seen some really, really horrific rains this this just sounds like one of those once in a lifetime kind of deals. Crazy. Yeah, and you know the crazy thing is I've seen people talk about because it was not considered like you know wasn't a hurricane or a tropical storm or something. So a lot of uh, like uh, you know FEMA and things like that they're not and insurance companies aren't willing to pay people because what? it was yeah because it's like oh this wasn't a hurricane it was just a, a bad rainstorm. Wow. And yeah, so people are fucked. All those abandoned let me, cars. Let me have a talk right now, too, about the insurance industry, Jeff. <laughs> I, <laughs> I got to tell you, I get a break, Cape Fabe, on the old insurance. Yeah, I think maybe, you know, I, I, do we have anybody? Is there anybody close to us, whether it's family, I don't, I don't think the uh, CEO of Geico is a listener. So feel No, free. no, but I mean, do we have anybody that's maybe a Patreon subscriber that's an insurance agent that's very defensive? I, I fucking hate ins- – I think insurance to me, it's the – I was reading an article the – and I, I realize I'm sidetracking, but I was reading an article the other day, and obviously there when you get insurance, there are many different types and levels and packages and premium – you pay more for this and less for that. But I guess the way that it's, it's laid out in explained this may be really hard to believe jeff it's never really clear a lot of times as to what's taking place and i was reading this story and it was i believe a national story because it didn't occur in pa and it was about this older woman 
who had, I guess, got new insurance for her home, but it didn't cover something. Of course, she was like in her 80s, and it was never explained to her that if she didn't have I'll say it was fire, but I don't know what it was. But if she doesn't have fire insurance and her house catches on fire, she won't get paid. Well, whatever she didn't get in her insurance that, again, wasn't explained to her, wound up happening to her house and she's getting nothing because the insurance company won't pay for it. I mean, let's, let's do that. Let's fuck an old woman who's 85 out of her complete life savings. who has nowhere to live. That, that seems like a good idea. I'm sorry, Jeff. I, insurance companies, I got to tell you, boy, can't stand them. Well, you know, the old story is that, uh, insurance companies are always there for you <laughs> until you really need them. And then it's like, uh, well, there's like this. A variation to what your policy states and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's absolutely maddening. There's no question about it. So anyway, Barry, let's go to our match of the week. Let's talk a little Puerto Rican action. So Barry, this, uh, this match, I, I believe it took place. Hold on. Let me, since I didn't write it down because I'm a fucking idiot. I want to say 12, 21, 85, uh, is the date of birth. It's, uh, or the date of birth, the date of the, uh, the match. It took place in the, uh, the famous stadium there in San Juan. Uh, which I will probably butcher if I even try, so I'm not going to try. But um, so here's what happens. The match, as Barry said, uh, and before I throw it to you, Barry, I'm just going to say this. It's a good match. It's a good to a very good match. Is this like top 100 of the decade? Probably not. It's probably not as good as, the, you know, I was very fortunate, Barry. The end of March in 1986, I saw a great match at the Crockett Cup uh, at the New Orleans Superdome between the, the Sheepherders and the uh, the Fantastics, which was just fucking lights out. Uh, is, that, is this match as good as that one? Probably not. But what does make this match super, super fucking compelling, Barry, is the go-home and what happens afterwards. Let me just say that the stipulations for this match were loser must leave the building in an ambulance. Barry Rose, tell the folks what you thought about this match. Oh, I, I loved it. I mean, look, even the match is still really good, though, right? Sure, this is not a uh, a five-star Kings Road classic, but at the same time, if you want to see blood and guts, if you want to see the glove on the hand, if you want to see the most out-of-control crowd in the history of pro wrestling, this might be the match. And let, let me also say, yes, Invader 1 is in this match. We're very aware of what happened uh, 35 years ago where he killed Bruiser Brody. We all have our opinions, but let's not let this detract from what this match is. And there's no reason to state or, you know, say what has been said for the last 35 years about this guy. This match, and this match works a lot, really in two way. One, sheep herders knew how to fucking get heat, right? They, uh, these guys traveled the world and wherever they went, they were able to get incredible heat. The second is, it, yeah, Cologne and Invader, look, these are two of Puerto Rico's sons here. These are the guys, the holy grail in a lot of ways of Puerto Rican wrestling, but it, it's really less about them. It's the fucking people in the in the crowd that night. This is the most rabid, psycho crowd I may have ever seen. Imagine if you took ECW, you gave the ECW crowd kilos of cocaine, whipped them up. Wait, wait, wait. That, that may have been a possibility, Barry. Well, please. I was going to say, right, maybe I should change that. But th- that's exact. By the way, Jeff, I watched Cocaine Bear last night, which we can talk about later if you want. All righty. Uh, there you go. But it... 
honestly, this crowd is rabid. This crowd is vocal. This is the, my opinion, except for the, the parts where it looks like full scale riots are going to break out and somebody's going to die. This is the type of reaction that you want from a crowd. They fucking believe. And I don't know what, and I, maybe Jesus or Juan can answer this for us next week. I would want to know what the attendance was for this match. And then I want to know what the attendance was for maybe the next two or three cards after that. Because I would think as a fan, if I'm in the building this night and I'm watching this match and all this craziness, I'm fucking coming next week. Like there's no question about it. This has been maybe the most fun I've ever had as a fan. So I really like this match. Again, there's blood, there's, you know, it, Blood and guts. It's a typical sheep herders match from the late seventies, early eight, early eighties when these guys were all over the place. But what occurs afterwards in the frenzy, the just the fucking insanity of this? My opinion, this is this is it. This is why we're all we're all wrestling fans, Jeff. Well, let me just uh, offer a little counterpoint to that, please. You know, one of the things that if you talk to an old school wrestler, okay, and you talk about uh, you know, let's just say Terry Funk. And one of the things that he's told me before, and I'm sure you've talked to other wrestlers, was you have to know when to, if you're a heel, when to bring that crowd up to a certain point. But then you need to know when to kind of calm them down. And then, you know, need to know when to bring them back up. You know, you need to control the ebb and flow. That's what a good heel uh, and a great heel can do is to control the ebb and flow of the match, to control the ebb and flow of the audience. And the only thing I will say here, yeah, they were fucking obviously great at getting this crowd to be absolutely rabid. But there was no controlling uh, that crowd once they got to a certain fever pitch. And in that sense. I kind of want to say there's a flaw in the game here because you got them basically too hot where, you know, you couldn't bring <laughs> right. them back down and it got to be where it was kind of fucking scary. And, you know, you, uh, you have a, I'll just, I'll just come out and say it here. This is no spoiler alert for, cause I haven't posted the match yet, but there is a part of the match towards the end where they are carrying, I don't even know which guy it is. I think it might be Butch, but I'm not positive. They're carrying them away from the ring on a stretcher. They do the yeah. bit where the baby faces are tipping the stretch. Oh, and by the way, let's talk about the fact that the baby faces in the match, and, and there, this is revenge. This is a, a program where they had, uh, I think they broke like uh, Miguel Perez uh, Jr.'s arm or something like that. And so they were getting revenge. And like, uh, Jeff, the, Jeff, the, not to interrupt, and I okay. apologize. Who's the older guy? That's outside the ring when Cologne and Inv- – so they've got the, the sheep herders on a stretcher, but Cologne and, uh, and Invader are in the ring, and there's an old guy, older guy, wearing a jacket, and he's grabbing Cologne, and Cologne looks like he's going to turn around and punch him, but it, he doesn't really – maybe he thought it was a fan – I think that may be Miguel Perez Sr., and I don't know. Yeah, let me, let me just go back to uh, conversations that I had with Jesus, not Juan, Jesus. Uh, so he says, uh, you know, I said, can you give me some background on this feud? And and what Jesus was nice enough to do, as I said, was he sent us a short video. I'm going to check with Jesus and ask him uh, for permission to post it in our group uh, so that, you know, maybe you can clarify before you watch this match. Watch this video from Jesus so you can understand what's going on here. He says, uh, th- there's a guy who, uh, accompanies the sheep herders 
to uh, ringside. He is uh, El Vikingo. Uh, he invented the fire match in his country of El Salvador. Uh, the old fire match, Barry. Those are always good. Uh, he yeah, wrestled. He invented the fire match. Let's well, see. Well, in El Salvador. Oh, oh, in El Salvador. Okay. Yeah. It's different. Yeah. So he wrestled. He was a manager and referee, uh, for WWC for around 25 years. The guy with the coal miners glove is Miguel Perez Jr., who was injured by the heels okay. in, a t- in a TV match when they hit him with the coal miners glove. The guy in the two piece suit is Miguel Perez Sr who was managing Carlos and Invader that night and also looking for revenge versus the heels who had injured his son. And uh, he's interesting. Of course, one of the guys doing the, uh, the, the play-by-play is Hugo Savinovich, uh, who's uh, just an all-time classic guy. Uh, you know, Dave Meltzer used to always talk about the time that uh, he did a hair match and had lost the hair match and was doing color commentary uh, on the match where he lost his hair and uh, how uh, Hugo is like, oh, there I am. I'm... I'm losing my hair. I'm having my head shaved. And he was like crying as he was talking about it. He said it was very funny. Uh, but during the play by play, one of them, whether it's Hugo or the other guy said, they better bring an, an undertaker along with the ambulance. And Hugo said, I'm fearing for the life of the sheepherder, <laughs> which is, that's when it's getting a little scary. I'll tell you uh, what, Jeff, if you watch that towards the end as they're loading, and again, I don't know if it's one sheep, because you can't tell, is it one sheep herder or is it two, but they're putting somebody in an ambulance. There are, I'm going to say, 250 to 300 fans crowding that ambulance absolutely. to the point that they can't even open up the doors to get that sheep herder in there. And the first thing in my head is, what if one of, somebody's got a knife? Like these people are, they, they, they're lunatics. Well, what if I, somebody's got a knife? This guy's going down. So before they even get there, let me just finish my, my thought was they have the, they, they get him out of the ring after the stretcher has been tipped over a couple of times with the baby faces. And it was so bad where you're kind of like, Hey, kind of feel bad for the guy, <laughs> you know, and if you're feeling bad for the heel, is that really a good thing? You know, right, like, right. is it kind of going over the top a little bit? So then they've got him outside the ring and they've got him on the stretcher and they're carrying him a little too close to the ring barrier. And you see a fan yep. who begins like, I don't know if he's just slapping or hitting or chopping the, the sheep herder that's on the thing. And then a soldier comes up and I, and I was like, Oh yeah, it appears that the soldiers are carrying some sort of weapons. And I think it was you that said that you had heard they used to carry Uzi. <laughs> Yeah, something. But yeah, and there's there's matches that are out there from Puerto Rico. And I think Jesus could also clarify this, but uh, they would show that you've got I don't know if it's the army, whatever, National Guard, but there are armed military guards with these Uzis, AK-47s all throughout the building. It's it's insane. Yeah. And then uh, when they, uh, you know, when they finally get them back to the ambulance, Barry's right. The ambulance is fucking surrounded. And, you know, they're, they're like people that are pounding on the ambulance wanting to get at these guys. And wow, <laughs> it was kind of fucking crazy. We're, we're going to post a link to this match and, uh, enjoy the match, but stay for the fucking like last five minutes of the video clip because seeing those guys getting put in the ambulance, it's like, yeah, you know, I was trying to think other than the famous uh, one from Cleveland. With uh, Ox Baker and Ernie Ladd and I think Johnny Powers. Can you think of any match? You know, you always hear about how the Bahamas was a, a real scary venue yeah. to run because of, uh, you know, the fact that the, the, the security wasn't always the best. Uh, can you think of anything like this that you've ever seen, Barry? Not, not to this, uh, not to this level. That's for sure. I've seen the one that you talk about and I, this is the one where I, I think it's 
Brower has somebody comes out to save Ox Baker. Maybe it's is it Brower? I forget. I don't remember who it is. And poor Ox, who who couldn't run to save his life because his knees, he didn't have any knees, right? Yeah. And uh he's trying to go back and they're just fucking hammering him with shit on the way back. That's a scary situation. And I, I think we're fortunate that in most cases in in the United States, at least in the bigger cities, you really weren't seeing riots or wrestling matches. I mean, imagine if we were, you know, look, Jeff, we're in our late 20s, right? And instead of going to WCW pay-per-views or NW, we're like, well, fuck it. Let's go over to Puerto Rico. What the hell? It's a Friday night. Let's go see a wrestling show. Could you imagine being fucking caught in this this shit? <laughs> like, I, that would be it for me. I'm headed right to the airport. Well, I, I actually had a chance to ask uh, Jesus about this, and I, and I said, you know, this post-match stuff, I, I, I said, I, this is fucking nuts. And he goes, yeah, he goes, uh, there was an incident once where Miguel Perez Jr. was in a battle royal. Get a little of this, Barry. He was hit in the head with an alternator. What? Hey, let me let me uh, bring the alternator from my car. I'll get into the stadium with it and I'll chuck it towards the a fucking alternator, Barry. Right, right, yeah. Well, I think that was common too. And again, Jesus would be the guy. But I, I believe I used to hear about they would throw batteries that they were just chucking batteries. Well, no, no. I, I mean, I've heard people, you know, throwing small fucking batteries. You know, uh, whipping. I've heard that at football games. I know uh, <clears throat> your uh, your home city of Philadelphia. They're very famous for that. And then uh, down in uh, the Bayou. At uh, LSU games, especially at night, fans were – they used to tell the opposing team to keep your helmet on because the, the fans are going to throw fucking batteries at you. Right. So there are places where I've heard of that, but this is a fucking alternator. You know, yeah. I mean, that that's not like a little small uh, diesel – I want small. but pretty, like pretty strong guy too, I'm guessing. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, who's yeah. fucking whipping that thing? Schwarzenegger came to the matches and is whipping it there. So, <laughs> there you, you know, go. but – uh we're going to post a link to this match. It is fu- the finish is just fucking crazy. Hey, hey, Zeus, we can't thank you enough, buddy, for uh, for helping us out with some of the context of this match because it is absolutely insane. But uh, in this case, it's insane uh, in a great way. Uh, so Butch Miller, you know, we kind of briefly touched on him uh, last week, Barry, uh, about the unfortunate loss. Uh, you know, I read uh, the Observer obituary. Uh, Meltzer always doing top-notch work on the obituaries. So one of the things that he did say was that uh, Butch apparently had come over for a uh, some sort of event, maybe a, a signing or whatever, yeah. uh, coinciding with WrestleMania. And it was there that uh, maybe there was some change in his medication that affected, uh, affected him negatively. And then, um, you know, uh, he was put in the hospital. But one of the things, uh, you know, if you could say it, that it was a nice thing was that uh, he apparently hadn't seen Luke in like something like 10 or 15 years. And uh, Luke saw him in the hospital. They were able to uh, to talk to each other uh, before uh, Butch passed away. Uh, very, very unfortunate. But, uh, yeah, uh, Butch Miller, as we mentioned, uh, a guy that with uh, with Luke had come into Florida. Uh, h- how many different times did they come into Florida again, Barry? Only t- uh, wait, let me take that back. Two that I'm aware of, uh, they showed up, I want to say it was 81, and uh, it was 81, and then they came back, and I'll say it was 86. Yeah, that's when they feuded with the with the uh, Fabs, right? Fabs, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, we, uh, as we were wanting to do, we did it last week. We'll do it again. We raised an adult beverage to the memory Absolutely. of the great Robert Butch Miller, one of the original Kiwis, uh, the sheep herders, and... Uh, 
you know, salute, my friend, and we'll see you down the road. Now, Barry, why don't we uh, take a look at some great movie? That's what's known as a smooth segue, Barry. Oh. Uh, some of the great movie monsters for each decade of the last hundred years. Let's talk a little about that. Barry Rose, instead of a top 10 list, I always love a good top 10 list. I think the listener understands that by now. But instead of a top 10 list, Barry, we're going a list that carries back 100 years. In other words, slightly more time than Greg Good has been around. Or maybe, is it over 100 at this point? I'm not sure. Anyway, from our friends at MovieWeb.com, Barry Rose, the best monster movie in each decade over the last 100 years. Barry, do you like a good monster movie? I love a good monster movie, absolutely. As I said, I watched the, the monster movies. Uh, my daughter, Kelly, big horror movie fan, so I don't know how many of these she's seen. Going to have to send her this list after we're done. We're going to start off with the 1920s. Ooh, it's the Roaring Twenties, Barry. Have you ever had a chance to see the original from 1922? Over 100 years old at this point, Nosferatu. I have seen the original Nosferatu. Ah, ah. Greg Good, I, a member of the cast. Anyway, Greg Good, uh, yeah, he, yeah, Greg Good might have been. I'll tell you when I first saw it. So I had heard of this movie. This would be, I guess, what essentially was the original vampire movie, original type of uh, uh, Dracula type of Dracula movie. before Dracula. I think it was, and it was uh, it was the first vampire movie that I I think had some traction. And when I first moved to New York, one of the big attractions of New York when I first moved there was server they had manager. all these server. Thank and, you. And let me quickly say, arguably the worst server that ever existed in the history of serving. So, but your hair was spectacular. I had fucking I had a thirty inch waist and a and a full head of hair, and that's about all I had going. Are those for two me things still day. there? Those two things are long gone. But one of the one of the big attractions of New York City back into the early to mid 80s was they had all these revival movie houses. And these were essentially movie theaters that were close to 100 years old or maybe 70, 80 years old. They were in complete disrepair. No first run movies were ever showing there, but they would show older movies. And I remember the first movie I saw when I got to New York was. The uh, movie Freaks by Todd Browning. Have you ever seen this movie, by the way? I, I know, I know the movie you're talking about. It was on HBO Max for maybe six or eight months. This is going back maybe about a year ago, and I watched it a couple of times. And it just is a a remarkable movie. But you know, you would go into these theaters, you'd pay like three or four bucks, and you'd sit there and you would watch what was essentially this. I think Freaks was 1932 or right around there. So it was a 50, 60 year old movie. I think the second movie I saw was Nosferatu. And, uh, you know, again, you go in, you pay three, four bucks, you're watching these killer movies. This is a great movie. And really what made it so great was the guy playing Nosferatu, believable in his creepiness. I don't know how much makeup was applied to this guy and how much was it, but this is a creepy movie, Jeff. Well, well let me ask you, do you remember the movie that came out, oh, God, 15, 20 years ago with, sure Will, with Willem Dafoe? Yes, sir, where he played the Nosferatu character. And the the, the the gist of the basic story was that the guy that got the role back in the 20s, who I don't think he did a lot of stuff after that, was essentially a vampire in real life. In real life, yeah. Who got the, who got the movie role. Was that the basic gist of the story? That was basically it. How good was that movie with Willem Dafoe, yes. too? Yeah, good that stuff. really was, yeah. So, all right, now we're going to move to the 1930s, Barry, from 1933. It's King Kong. 
well, geez, who hasn't seen King Kong? This is part of our our cultural legacy in this country, and there are certain movies. And I think, you know, if you were to pick 10 movies that maybe really helped define and shape the uh, the American film, I think King Kong's got to be on that list, right? And it was one of those movies as a kid, It you know, that Wizard of Oz. Uh, these were the movies that I think, you know, gone with the wind to some degree also. These were the movies that really captured my attention. And King Kong was such a remarkable movie, and it, it really worked on every level. I saw it, I'll say dozens of times. I was such a fan that my parents, and I don't know how old I was, but I was young, actually got me a a replica King Kong movie poster. Of course, had it been the original Jeff, I would be sitting on some island near Tahiti now just reveling in all my dollars. But that was not the case. But fucking love King Kong. Okay, a couple things. Uh, first of all, uh, there was a remake, late 70s. I know Jessica Lange played the uh, the Faye Ray role. And then I want to say... Bridges was in that one. Yes, too. and I want to say like five or ten years ago, they did one with Jack Black uh, as Jack the movie Black, director. Adrian Brody? Yeah, maybe uh, it was like something like Kong Skull Island, I think. Might no, that it. came later. And that, oh, okay. the, that one with Kong that you first talked about with Jack Black wasn't bad. It yeah. was, uh, it, it was, it, I think it was fairly remaining truthful to the original story. There were some great scenes when they actually got to the island, though. Skull Island came out maybe five or six years ago. Okay. And that had, uh, what the fuck? The Step Brothers. What's the one guy's name? John Riley? John C. Riley? Yes, John C. Riley. And he was the star of that film. And that's a Samuel L. Jackson, too. There are moments in that film that are really good. At Say times. my name again, motherfucker. Sorry. Say it. Got caught up in the Say what movie. again, motherfucker. Say what again. Kahuna Burgers. Those are pretty good burgers. We could do yeah, this all day, damn Jeff. Fine but, yeah, it's a damn fine burger. But but with that Skull Island, as as times it's cheesy and hokey, the ending of the movie, literally, you might even get tears in your eyes, uh, it, which is a bizarre thing to say when it's this type of movie. But I've seen, I think, every Kong movie, including the horrible ones that came from Japan as well. So the thing to consider here as we go back over a century is we're talking 1933. You're talking about the country. Uh, the United States is still in the midst of the Great Depression. Okay. Imagine the sort of impact this movie had on people that were able to to afford to go to the movies because yeah. of how the poverty that was just slamming the country. And when they go in there to have a form of escape, let's be honest, and you see this giant gorilla up on top of the Empire State Building with planes shooting at him, trying to knock him down. It just had to be an amazing, an amazing spectacle that people couldn't believe. And then, you know, the the fact that you have this basic what what's essentially the lead villain of the piece who, when he falls to his death, uh, I think the line was uh, "Twas beauty that killed the beast. He, he does a baby face turn at the end of the movie. And as you said, you get a little sniffly there because now the, the you know, King Kong is dead that I will tell my own personal uh, King Kong related story when I was in. I want to say third or fourth grade. We lived in Key West, Florida, and wow. my dad was my dad was stationed at the when it was still a Navy base down there. And I remember that coming on the local TV station, big big deal at the time for a a, a young uh, I guess it would have been what uh, maybe nine year old uh, Booker. 
was they were going to have King Kong versus Godzilla. Barry, did you ever see that fine production? Oh, my God, yes. Many times. And holy shit, I could not have been any more excited for a movie as a nine-year-old. I'm going to see fucking King Kong versus Godzilla. However, a young booker might have gotten into a little bit of mischief, and somebody threatened to narc me out to the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin, the original Mrs. Bowdrin, and caused me not to miss King Kong versus Godzilla, but it was delayed. Like I missed the first 30 minutes and boy, was a nine year old booker pretty pissed about missing that first half. Was this narc? Was this narc a family member? Uh, No, no, it was a narc across the street. The lady across the street was in everyone's business, little friggin' gossip. But uh, yeah, we have a name. We can reach out and say hello or Uh, I don't believe she's with us anymore. I believe it was uh, the uh, lovely Mrs. Sleeve who tried also, by the way, little uh, also side note, tried to get a nine year old booker to eat salad uh oh you know well this is what we had I, w- I was staying with them for a weekend uh this is what we have here you have to eat your salad uh there was choking there was gagging which led me to a lifetime of hating salad so uh <laughs> this, it, this it, explains it, it now all yeah, right choking and gagging besides the uh, salad <laughs> but anyway oh i guess, so uh yeah. so now we're getting to the 1940s barry the 1940s presented 1941's the wolfman oh lon cheney jr as the title character have you seen the Wolfman? Absolutely, he was such a uh, a great actor too. And Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, was a guy that he started off his career. His father was Lon Chaney, the original Phantom of the Opera. Hence him being Lon Chaney Jr. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, and he but his dad was a guy that was around for years, and and he started off really hot. Becoming the Wolfman was a big deal, but I don't know if it was alcoholism, which it might have been, but there were some. Uh, Poor choices that were made in later years, and he wound up working just some really low-level, grade-Z-type movies. Uh, it was in a movie called Spider Baby, which... Uh, Who among us has not made some poor decisions late in life, Barry? Uh, I digress. Well, isn't that true? But uh, And all the time, but uh, it's uh, he was a solid actor. This is a good movie. And for its time, too, if you watch the transformation of when he becomes the Wolfman, it's kind of mind-boggling, right? Like, certainly, I think a big deal was made out of American Werewolf in London, which I think was 80 or 81, somewhere right around there. Yes, and David Naughton. Yeah, and that transformation was really incredible, too. I think that was Rick Baker yeah. who did that. But even watching this with Lon Chaney Jr. was incredible. He, this was a really good movie, uh, a fun movie. Yeah, loved it. So according to the article, it's funny you mention that because according to the article, the film's approach and visual rendering of the werewolf would have a lasting influence on future depictions of the creature. And the final dissolved transformation effect became the industry standard until the 1980s when more grotesque practical effects succeeded it. So that transformation scene that you mentioned was basically the industry standard for 40 friggin years. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, it definitely was, too. And you you think how hard some of that stuff was. And certainly the Rick Baker stuff was just incredible. It really was. I remember watching that movie and, and all the buzz that, that was surrounding it. And everybody was like, you got to see that you're not going to believe it the way he transforms. And it really was incredible. But the standard of what some of these guys were doing in the 1940s was really incredible on its own right. So we're getting to the 1950s now, Barry, and I'm just going to say there may have been some paranoia about the uh, the effects of uh, nuclear war, uh, radiation, leading to 1954s. Barry, laid on me. 
1954. What's your guess? What movie's going to define the decade? It's 1954. It would be shit. I honestly, I'm drawing a blank. Okay. So, uh, it's uh, Godzilla. Okay. Uh, so here's what's interesting. The movie as originally shot, uh, for Japanese audiences, of course, uh, you know, it was a big success. They then reshot and added scenes with Raymond Burr as a, uh, an American journalist that happened to be over in Tokyo. And the scenes with Raymond Burr, I think, were only shot for the American release of the film to basically explain what the hell was going on. Because, you know, you see this whole storyline with these Japanese scientists and then you hear Raymond Burr, Godzilla is now approaching downtown Tokyo. Right. And it's like he disappeared for five minutes and it's like, uh, he is now attacking Tokyo and they cut away and he'd be gone for fun. And it was really kind of funny, uh, to see Raymond Burr's, you know, scenes cut into the movie. But Godzilla was such a classic movie. And again, a movie that's been remade a few times. Uh, there was one that was done with Matthew Broderick and Jean Renault. I actually didn't hate that movie. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. I was uh, but okay it really, with that. yeah, it really got shit on. And there was one a couple years ago with, uh, the girl from Stranger Things, uh, Millie Bobby Brown. And, uh, right. that I, I wasn't really that crazy about, but 1954's Godzilla Barry, the original, what'd you think? I thought it was great. And you're right about the Raymond Burr stuff too. It didn't make any sense, but. Raymond Burr, what a fine actor. I still watch Perry Mason, the original Perry Mason to this day. This Godzilla, I, I, I didn't realize it was 1954. For some reason, I thought it came a little bit later. So yeah, surprised to hear that. I, I would have said maybe 59, maybe even into the sixties. Yeah. So much of the, uh, the movie and a lot of the movies that, that came out around that time. I mean, you think about like them and other, uh, movies that were staples of creature feature and stuff like that were due to the incredible paranoia that the country had about nuclear war. I, I mean, rightfully so. Uh, and the effects of radiation and what could happen uh, if radiation, uh, you know, got into this, the system, uh, you know, where it affects us now moving, uh, moving into the sixties, Barry. Oh, Get ready for a long speech from Barry Rose because <laughs> the the quintessential uh, monster movie from the 1960s, Barry, came out of 1968, shot, I believe, in and around Pittsburgh or the suburbs, oh. Barry Rose, from George A. Romero. It is Night of the Living Dead. Hit it, Barry. All you had to say was shot in and around Pittsburgh, and I knew exactly where you were going to go. And the, the cultural impact – that George Romero had to not only Pittsburgh, but I'd even say the state of Pennsylvania when it comes to horror movies is uh, it's unmatched in a lot of ways. And I, uh, geez, I'm trying to think it wouldn't have been last year, probably the, maybe it was, I don't know. It was at some point during COVID. So I'm going to say it was probably 21, 22. I don't, I think I was living on my own. I don't know. I'm doing math and I can't figure it out, but, Got into Pittsburgh. I drove Zach, long story short, drove Zach back to school and uh, going to the University of Pittsburgh, no doubt. But one of what was on my bucket list were essentially a couple of things. I wanted to go see the Andy Warhol Museum. I knew that wasn't happening. But I wanted to go to the Monroeville Mall, and that is where they had shot predominantly almost the entire film, Dawn of the Dead was shot in that mall. And if you've ever seen the movie, you know, it's, it takes place in the mall. So 
walk through the mall. I don't think there's much in relation now that it's, you know, almost 50 years old, 45 years old. There's not much in relation to the movie. And I was looking for certain things, but I was looking for somebody to maybe somebody that worked there to maybe have some guidance. So what do I do? I go to Hot Topic, Jeff, because that's where that's where you go to for guidance. It's where you, when you want something like like horror movies and shit like that, you go to Hot Topic. So I go in and I made the right decision because the young lady working behind the counter was a, a I guess a charter member of the Living Dead Weekend, and they do this whole weekend in Pittsburgh every year. They've been doing it for a couple of decades, and it's essentially a fan fest all built around the Living Dead series and/or franchise, and. uh she showed me, she goes, this is where the video game parlor was. Behind here is where the elevator is, if you remember that scene. And she goes, have you seen the George A. Romero Memorial? And I was like, no. And I was all excited. And she led me. And there's a very small section in the mall that is dedicated to George Romero. There is probably six photos on a wall. There's a bust of his head. And uh and they showed whatever was filmed there. They've got some stills of the movie that was filmed there. Night of the Living Dead, which is the movie that you're – I didn't love it as much as I think a lot of people did. And uh I I think a lot of people view this as maybe the great zombie film of all time or, or something close to it. I don't love it because I feel that – I feel Dawn of the Dead was better first off. But – Again, the cultural significance of this film, this was it. This was really the first movie to to bring zombies to the forefront. And there had been other movies where the dead walked the earth, etc. But at the same time, nothing had the impact that this film had. And it really laid wait for even The Walking Dead, which was, I think, just wrapped up, but was on for something like 12 years on television or something like that. So uh, maybe even longer. So the cultural impact of what that film brought, we're still feeling decades later. Again, I don't know. I always felt Dawn of the Dead was better. My favorite is uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead, which really had nothing to do with this series. But I still watch this one. This is on, I want to say it was on HBO Max right around Halloween. And you can certainly find this film every Halloween. It's still a really good movie, though, Jeff. Have you ever seen it? Yes. Has has Sven Sven Gulli ever done this movie? I don't know if he did. When you brought up the Raymond Burr Godzilla, that was one he did a few months back, which is that's what I immediately thought of. I don't know if he's ever done Night. I don't know. A lot of times he gets films that uh, I'm assuming the rights aren't overly expensive to air them. Yeah, and they they also have probably more of a camp value, too, let's be honest. They do, they do. And I think Night of the Living Dead probably would cost him some real money. Like, you're not seeing The Exorcist on Svengooli. Yeah. Certain films that are going to cost you more. But with it, uh, I certainly respect this film tremendously. So the article uh, saying that the uh, the film is intense and genuinely unnerving even today and makes the most of a simple premise and a very low budget. It's an iconic masterpiece that not only launched a successful franchise of semi-sequels, but also a deluge of copycats and ripoffs that eventually led to the creation of an entire subgenre of horror films. So let me just ask you. Do you think that, you know, one of the things I used to say, you mentioned The Walking Dead, which for the first eh, like five seasons, I really loved the show. Okay, it was great. 
But I used to always say that one of the things about The Walking Dead is that, you know, there could be a case made that The Walking Dead that are, you know, part of the title of the show are not the zombies. They're the survivors. So Night of the Living Dead, of course, is about, you know, is that strictly about the zombies or do you feel at some point that the survivors in the movies that are trying to hide out that they're really the living dead? That's a, and that's a, a very uh, esoteric question. I know yeah. I was going to say, and that's the kind of thing after I, uh, I smoke a big fatty. That's the, the way I would say, you don't get this shit life. on stick to wrestling, Barry. These kind of good questions. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> exactly. That's a very, very Brian Solomon offering this sort of content. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think he is. Ask that one more time, Jeff. That was so deep. So I had to, I have to the sit title down. Is and... Night of the living dead. Are right. the people in the, that are referred to in the title the zombies, or is it the survivors that are trying to, you know, survive? I, and, I, I believe it's the zombies, but I actually like the fact that you would see where it could be their survivors. I actually think that is a uh, that's a, a much deeper philosophical question. So I like that. I don't think so, but I actually like the idea. Coming next to the Patreon episode, we delve into this topic. We have a, a deep philosophical discussion. Barry will smoke a big fatty <laughs> so they can offer some concise, no doubt lucid commentary. <laughs> oh, yeah. More lucid than usual. Absolutely. Exactly. 1970s, Barry. And the film that was named from 1975 is not only in my top 10 movies of all time, my personal top 10, it is my number three film of all time. And I have talked about this movie a lot. Steven Spielberg's summer blockbuster uh, masterpiece, the film that literally created the summer blockbuster, it's Jaws. I mean... Look, you and I have sat here. We've talked about Jaws. We were even going to do like a Jaws Patreon episode, and we maybe we should get back to that. Jaws is – where does it rank for you? Is it just in your top ten? or uh, is Number it, three. Number three. I, I would say Jaws is in my top ten. If not, it's my top 20. Jaws is one of those films that at any point in the film, if I see it's on television, I stop oh, yeah. and I just leave it on. And it doesn't watching. matter where it's at. It don't have to be in the beginning, et cetera. It is, it is, in my opinion, it's a flawless movie start to finish. So the amazing thing is, is I agree with you that uh, I believe it's flawless. That's my own personal opinion and Barry's too. But the movie was apparently such a pain in the ass to make. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that they had, I think, three or four different versions of the shark, one that turned right, one that turned left, one that went straight ahead. And they were always having problems with the sharks breaking down. And that's one of the things when Spielberg is interviewed, he talks about what a pain in the ass it was to, to, you know, to produce it. Oh, my God. Just all you have to hear. That opening scene when the girl goes out to swim at night in the ocean and all of a sudden you hear this. Bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. And that music starts as the shark begins approaching the girl who's treading water and the shit is on, you know, and she goes down in the water. She screams. She doesn't know what's happening. And then the shark begins to eat her. And it is absolutely fucking terrifying. And that shit's like, what, 40? I was told there'd be no math. 48 years ago, 47. And that shit still scares you. 
you know, and how long were people afraid to go into the fucking water at the beach, Barry? Absolutely. Look, I was as well. And it's, uh, yeah. I I mean, and, and, you know, people maybe that weren't around in 1975, you know, we have younger listeners and stuff like that. You cannot imagine how terrified people were to go to the fucking beach and go in the water. Because, you know, like, oh, I can't go out in the water. There's a fucking uh, man-eating shark that's going to kill me. And, you know, so uh, a couple points. Uh, Roger Ebert is quoted in the article as saying, floating objects are used all throughout the movie to suggest the invisible shark. And the crucial action sequences at the end, we're often looking at kegs and not at a shark. Remember when the kegs were pulled down, Barry? Oh, yeah. Uh, and... uh but the premise is so well established that the shark is there. And boy, that's good. And you know, if we've always said like any really, really great monster movie, part of the key is letting your imagination run wild on what you're actually seeing. That's what made the first alien so great is because you didn't see alien until the fucking end of the movie. You know, the creature predator was so great because you never actually saw the predator until the end of the movie. And so when you see, you know, like remakes where, you know, and the movie predators, you saw him all over the place and aliens was a great action movie. I give it that, but all you saw, you you saw a nest of aliens. You have to keep that, uh, you know, uh, a wrestling term, the suspension of disbelief, you know, as you, you know, you let your imagination run wild when you don't see when, when you see those kegs go under, you're like, oh, shit, there's the fucking shark, you know. And when you hear that, you know, ominous music and you think, oh, the shark's going to hunting now and you really don't get a real big look at the monster that is the shark until like the last five minutes of the fucking movie. And that's part of what made Jaws so brilliant Bear. Yeah, there was. It was just, you know, it was such a great movie. And Spielberg, you know, he, uh, he, he hasn't had that big hit in quite a while. But if you go through and you look at his films and we were just talking about Sven Gulli about a month or so back. That's the kind of thing maybe, uh, certain Facebook groups should do a tournament on. Oh, wait a minute. We already did. <clears throat> wait a wait. minute. And Sven Gulli was actually playing duel, which with, uh, Dennis Weaver, which, oh, that's a great movie. Yeah. And it's such, and it's literally, it's, it's Dennis Weaver. It's uh, it's a truck, and there's that's it. I mean, that, that's essentially. And you know, for some people, they could watch this movie and be bored out of their minds. Spielberg puts you inside the mind of Dennis Weaver, and the movie in itself becomes frightening because of it. This movie really succeeded. Really, I, it's also the strength of the acting. Roy Scheider. In my opinion, one of the unheralded great actors of our day, just doesn't get that credit. Fantastic. Richard Dreyfus in a great role. And let's be honest, Robert Shaw as Quint, if that's not the greatest character of all time, I don't know who is. How the fuck did he not win an Oscar for that movie? I, it's because it's, it's all fucking political bullshit. That's yeah, because because he was fucking amazing in that. Yep. So 1980s. And here's the other thing. Everybody, every when you say that, how doesn't he? When you say Jaws, it, it, first thing people think of the shark obviously it all makes sense the second thing that most people reference is essentially the monologue that robert shaw gives about the uss indianapolis that's how fucking good he was and that's how believable that was yeah and uh a a scene that is the subject of much controversy about whether or not shaw himself wrote the dialogue whether or not there was a screenwriter that wrote the dialogue shaw claimed that he at least i believe had a part in writing the dialogue, but such a memorable uh, scene, you know, show me the way to go home. You know, remember, uh, show me the way to go home. 
I'm tired and yeah. So uh, yeah. Uh, people don't want to hear me sing. Trust me. Moving on to the 1980s, Barry, I believe this is another one that is a big favorite of Barry. Well, I tell you what, before we get to the 1980s. All right. I just thought of something. Uh, so Jaws 1970s, there was another iconic. It was a, uh, more of a horror film. Do you consider Michael Myers a movie monster? He is. Absolutely. Okay. So would yes. Halloween have been as good a choice or jo- as Jaws or should Jaws have gotten the nod here? What was Halloween? 78, 79? Yes. It's at the end. Haddonfield, Illinois. Thank you very much. You know, and this is really, does it come down to is Jaws a monster movie for you? Certainly he's a monster, but I mean, mm-hmm. when, I think when we think of monsters, we do think of either serial killers, uh, the Frankenstein monster, you know, zombies, whatever it is, not necessarily a, a, a shark with that. Again, I, I think as people watched Michael Myers, you know, I don't know how many people didn't go out and participate in Halloween activities that True. year. True. Unlike what Jaws did, the fucking beaches were empty that year, Jeff. Yes, yes. Killed the tourism industry, especially, oh, uh, you know, California and Florida. Yeah. So, uh, okay, moving back to the 1980s, I apologize. From 1982, director John Carpenter's remake of the 50s classic, The Thing. I mean, you and I are both massive fans of this movie. I never knew uh, until years later because I saw it in the theater. I thought it was a great movie. I thought the ending was uh, – I, I think this was the time when maybe things were starting to make a little sense to me. And the ending with Kurt Russell and they're out in the snow had a real impact on me. It was like, wow, that's – that that has a real impact. I fucking love this movie, and I thought this was one of the greats. And then I remember reading years later that this movie was a bust when it came out, that it bombed at the box office. Yet in later years, it, it took on this cult film type of status. I have been a fan of this movie since day one. Continue again. There, there is this movie to me. Everything about it works from A to Z. There's no flaw in this movie whatsoever. So yeah, it's a movie a lot like the Shawshank Redemption that really got a second life thanks to uh, video cassettes and, you know, like places like Blockbuster and things like that. People rediscovering uh, movies, like especially around like Halloween, and people are looking for a good Halloween movie to watch. Um, yeah. So so here's something that I've read. And let me ask you uh, your opinion. Maybe it's time for another poll in our group, Barry. Uh-oh. Is the thing the best movie that Kurt Russell's ever done? That's a, that is a really tough one right there because again his work with Carpenter has been great. Obviously did Big Trouble in Little China which I love, did uh Escape from New York which I love and so to me that's the triad right there of Kurt Russell films. Also was great working with Quentin Tarantino. Kurt Russell to me is the kind of guy He's always appears like he's kind of having fun with whatever role Absolutely, he on. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, like there's not like this seriousness. It just appears like he's, he, he's a guy. Fun. I'll tell you, don't mean to interrupt. He's a guy that made the transition from being a kid in movies to being an adult and hasn't ended up like flaming out like so many young people do when they're in the movies early in life. And, you know, like you said, he's got this proverbial smirk on his face. He's happy with his life. He's been with Goldie Hawn for what, like, I don't know, 35 years or something like oh, that. At least, yeah. And they both they did, grown- I think it was it Overboard? Yes. 
Where and they, they together. yeah, and they, they've grown old together, you know, and they did the, uh, the Santa movie, Santa Chronicles or whatever. And, uh, so in both uh, very happy and, uh, you know, so God bless him for that. Um, you know, it's funny. You were talking, talking about Kurt Russell movies and you had, you had brought up duel. Do you know what a movie that is reminiscent of duel is with Kurt Russell? What's the one where breakdown? His wife, breakdown. Yes. Oh, yes that's sir. a freaking great movie too. So yeah, Kurt Russell's so solid. This movie, the thing though, uh, you know, they're the isolation uh, of them at this base somewhere up in the, you know, like the Arctic Circle or something like that, an extraterrestrial lands. And uh, it's not E.T., let's just say that. It's no, uh, you know, hey, help me to go home. No, this is uh, an extraterrestrial that wants to kill everything it sees. And so um there are spectacular, spectacular transformation scenes in this. We mentioned earlier, uh, the great Rick Baker, uh, for his work in, um, uh, what do you call the day? The American Werewolf in London. I believe yes. he also had something to do with this film and some of the transformation scenes where you literally see a body split in half as the, uh, the creature emerges and it's just amazing. And spoiler alert, watch out for the, uh, the cold, the cold air and the breath that ensues. That's a little spoiler, Barry, at the end of the movie. So uh, something for the people to look for that have never seen this movie. So now let's move to the 1990s, slightly more campy, uh, almost reminiscent of a 1950s movie like, you know, them or something like that. But holy shit, if you want to have a good time at the movies one night, Saturday night, it's 830. You're home. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry, Barry. You're It's 1130 and Barry Rose has just gotten home. Yes. And you're looking for a good time. You flip through the channel selection and holy shit, there it is from 1990. Kevin Bacon in Tremors. Tremors is so much fun. And I, so Linda has, the lovely Linda, my girlfriend, has never seen this film before. And I want to say, what? Exactly. And I want to say Tremors 4 was on. It was one of the higher ones. And, uh, I was flipping around and I was like, have you ever seen the Tremors? And, while I only really loved the first one, it was a franchise. I think it was like four or five of these movies, which were just yeah. Incredible. The uh, what's the guy? Uh, the the guy that was on the TV show with um, Michael Gross. Michael J. Fox. Michael Gross. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Fred yeah I think Ward, he's in all of them. He's in all. Yeah. I think it was. Was it Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre? Yes, his they wife? were. They were the gun nuts that lived they outside of town. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but just great. Fred, the late Fred Ward, a great underrated actor as yes. well. This is a fun movie. I remember seeing this in the theaters when it first came out. I love Tremors. And, you know, part of what made Tremors great, again, you didn't see the monster until the end of the movie. And the uh, the verbal interplay between Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon yes. is hilarious in this movie. Yeah. Uh, they, they, I wish they had come back for uh, a second movie just to watch those two interact with one another because they were very funny. Uh, the... Um, Besides the two people you mentioned, the guy that played uh, the the Asian guy that was in charge of like the general store, he's a, a guy that's been in a zillion. He was in um, Big Trouble he, in Little China. Yeah, he was the guy uh, in the beginning of the movie where I think they're why you give Jack Burton such a hard time. <laughs> yes, remember that guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a that's great him. actor. And, he's uh, a great man. Why you give him a hard time? <laughs> that guy's been. He's got like the one funky eye, right? Yes, yes. He kind of yeah. like has a. I that's half closed, but yes. no, but tremors, uh, I can't stress it. If you are looking on a, it's a rainy Saturday afternoon and you're flipping down the old channel selector and you see tremors, if you've never seen it, get ready for two hours of just 
balls to the wall fun. It's a comedy action horror movie and it's really so much fun. I can't recommend it enough. Lots of good times there. So from 2000, Barry, actually 2006, a movie that I happen to have watched within the last couple of months. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's from South Korea, Barry. Have you ever seen The Host? Oh, I don't know if I have. So this is sort of a takeoff on the old monster movie, Monster in the River, and people down by the river uh you know start disappearing uh it's done by uh, the director who did the movie parasite did you ever see parasite i did see parasite yeah his name is uh bong jun ho and it's a great little monster movie of course it's subtitled which means we have people going oh i'm no good focus bong it, it, oh, a word near and dear to your heart, Barry. Bong. Wow. Can you imagine if your parents, uh, knowing hey. their uh, restraint, <laughs> had named you Bong Rose? Right. That should be you more know, popular. Howard Baum would have gone, you're my best friend, buddy. Hang out exactly. with <laughs> Bong Baum also. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. That good, too. But, no, the host, uh, it pops up there on, you know, your HBO, your HBO Max, your uh, Showtime, whatever. And I had a chance to watch it within the last few months. And it's a really good monster movie. Uh, and if you get a chance, you should check it out. It's a very, very, well, it, the article here says, without a doubt, the host is a modern monster masterpiece. So from 2010, Barry, you know, we referenced the different remakes of Godzilla that had happened. The one with Matthew Broderick, the other one with Millie Bobby Brown. I did not see uh, a one that apparently I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm reading the article real quick here. Apparently, it was a uh, maybe a Japanese release only called Shin Godzilla from 2016. Did you ever see that? Shin Godzilla. Yes. And this was released only in Japan. I don't know. It's it was a 2016 release. Like I said, I've seen I don't the. Know if I, I ever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, the, it says here, the article, the film was well acted, bursting with stunning special effects, the most notable of which being the rendering of the title character who looks more menacing and frighteningly realistic than he has ever before. Oh. Um, so I might have to check to see if that's available, uh, streaming or not. So next from, uh, the 2020s, so far, the article says, Barry, have you ever seen 2022's Prey? I believe who was in Prey? Uh, it does not say. This is the one that was directed by. Was it says here perhaps the only genuinely great follow-up to Predator, although a case can be made for the misunderstood Predator Two. Prey is a clever prequel that boldly shifts the action to the 1700s and follows Never. a Comanche woman who defends her tribe from the bloodthirsty alien warrior. So I, I, I should say. So obviously, I made a mistake. This was on Hulu. I want to say it was a Hulu exclusive. Uh, it was either Hulu or Prime, and it was an yeah. exclusive film to them. I definitely and, remember the coming attractions. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, people were talking about it, and I sat down, and I think I made it 10 minutes, and uh, there was no dialogue whatsoever. And now I understand why. It's a Comanche woman in the 1700s. So it, I just didn't – it seemed like a period piece in the 1700s, and I just didn't put put forth any time. Now, maybe based off of this, I may go back and actually watch it, but I did not I did not watch it. So you know what surprises me as I read this and I, I looked at the 2010s and the 2020s? Surprising not on there, Barry, have you seen A Quiet Place? I have seen A Quiet Place. Quiet Place, the one with uh, Krasinski? Yes. 
Yeah, I saw the first one. I think there's been two now. Yes. Two or three. I saw the first one. Spoiler alert, Krasinski's not in the second one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he better not be, considering what happens at the end of the first one. But uh, I thought it was a good movie. I I don't know if it blew me away, but I it was okay. Yeah, it was good. Well, no, there were, uh, you know, as I looked at this, I was like, I'm really surprised because there were, uh, again, the monsters you don't see until the end of the film. Yes. Uh, there was, oh, let's just say that scene where she is in the bathtub, Barry, yep. <laughs> giving birth that she can't make a noise. She can't make any sound because it will attract the creatures. That was some genuinely compelling shit right there. And the fact that, again, uh, I can't pound the table on this enough. You don't see the creature until the very end of the movie. And that's part of what makes it so fucking compelling uh, as you're watching it is because you don't, you know, all you see is like this blur go by the camera you like the opening scene of the movie when uh again spoiler alert when one of their children is killed you see a blur grab the child and take it into the woods and they realize what's happening and they're running trying to find their child but at the same time you know if if you had seen something come and grab the kid and you see it run away and they chase whatever it is that's grabbed the kid you lose something there the fact very smartly that krasinski as the director kept the kept the thing a mystery until the very end of the movie Huge thumbs up, and it made all the difference in the world, in my opinion. So we are going to post a link to this list in our group, Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. So let me ask you, what is uh, a movie that you think, of the ones we listed, one per decade, that hasn't been mentioned that you think should have been mentioned on this fine Peabody and Sherman award-winning podcast? So I'm tempted to say a film that, uh, well, I, I think you can make a case in the 70s. And the 50, I'm, I'm sure I can make a case for every decade. Let, let's talk about the 50s. Creature from the Black Lagoon. That's a good one. And it, But that's tough because I think the amount of horror films that came out in the 1950s was just astronomical. There was, I mean, that, that was the genre of film in the 50s. It was horror movies. So you had some great ones to choose from. I am partial to Creature from the Black Lagoon. I absolutely love it. If I was looking at the 70s and we're looking for, and this is a, this, these are monsters as opposed to straight horror, but again, I, I think The Exorcist, just the impact and look, a bigger impact than Jaws. No, you know, look, there, you, you, there's no way. I think Jaws, I think what Jaws did to, uh, yeah, to, for sharks and beaches, et cetera, we may never see anything like that ever again, Jeff. That was absolutely incredible. But The Exorcist, I think, was such a groundbreaking type of horror film as well. So, so there are two that I'll I might throw, off the top of my head. I'll throw a couple out at you. From the 70s, the original Alien. Absolutely. In space, no one can hear you scream. That's I think even right. Close Encounters would be another one, too. Uh, yeah, that's a fair one. So in the 80s, you know, someone out there is right now losing their shit that Freddy Krueger wasn't mentioned or Jason Voorhees. What say you? Yeah, well, I do think the original, I think the original Friday the 13th was 1980. So you're right. And look, they, they actually can, I think they're, they can make a very strong case. Eh? These are iconic horror characters, whether it was Michael Myers, Freddie, uh, Jason Voorhees. These were guys that, you know, they built franchises around these guys throughout the 80s, 90s, and then on. So yeah, I could see that. Okay. So take two. What is your choice? That means we're ending this segment, Perry. 
What is your choice for a creature or a monster that was not mentioned here? So, Barry, as we're, uh, we're doing the old go home, uh, round of the turn, that kind of thing. You know, Barry, uh, we talked at the very beginning of the show, we talked about all the bad weather in South Florida and stuff. And, you know, we had, uh, quite a bit of rain up here and not anywhere, even in the remote galaxy of what they had in South Florida. But we were in the midst of a pretty good rainstorm the other day. And I went over, uh, my son needed a ride to work. And my son, uh, he lives with my daughter and her husband, and they kind of live a bit out in the country. Uh, you got to go, go down some uh, country roads to get to their place. And I uh, was driving along. I went and picked him up, and we're heading back to work, kind of going back the same way that I came in. And I'm driving along, and uh, I saw something by the side of the road. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I stopped, and I backed up my car, and there were two dogs on the side of the road. Uh, two dogs no longer with us. No, no. There were, there were two dogs that were very much alive. Okay. And there was, uh, appeared to be a puppy, uh, and an older dog. I'm oh. not sure if the older dog was the mother. And they were kind of on the outside. Uh, they, they weren't on the road. They were about, oh, maybe 10, 10, 15 feet off of it. And, uh, as I backed up and I looked and the dog started kind of going back into the woods. Now I will say there, there are homes. Uh, that are set back, uh, off the road. And I'd like to think that maybe that these dogs just maybe got out of their yard or something like that. That's what I'd like to think, Barry. What I don't want to think about, especially as it was raining and these dogs were out in the rain getting wet. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna fucking cut a promo here, Barry. You have to bear well, with me here. You know what? I'm, I am opening a can of whoop ass with you. Go for it, Jeff, because this is a very deserved promo because. If some motherfucker dropped these two dogs off in the country, in the fucking, you know, and then it's pouring rain, these poor animals. And, you know, Barry, do you remember about 100 episodes ago when I mentioned the song, if I had a rocket launcher and I fucked up the guy that did the song's name? Uh, His name is, I think, Bruce Coburn, and I, and it's, but it's spelled Cockburn, and I said Bruce Cockburn. So he did a song called If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Well, brother, if I had a fucking rocket launcher and I saw somebody drop off a couple of dogs in the middle, because you fucking hear the stories about people doing that. They just, they drop their dog or their dog's too old and they, or, or or they're, you know, I'm not going to say animals like cats, whatever. And they drop them off like out in the middle of fucking nowhere. I'm sorry. You know what you are? You're a big steaming piece of shit. And if, you know, if, if there's anybody in our group, that is that fucking obtuse. You know, if you don't like animals, that's fine. Just don't don't get an animal. But if you have an animal and you mistreat the animal, uh, or if you're you know you do something like this, you know, just don't bother to fucking talk to me. If you're a person that's like that, that comes to our you know comes to the fan fest, uh, and don't bother to come up and say, oh hey Booker, how you doing? It's great to see you. No, just fucking don't even fucking talk to me. Just keep fucking walking because I want nothing to do with you. Nothing. Barry, your thoughts? Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, and before uh, Jeff tells you to go fuck yourself, which I would do as well, make sure you buy a bunch of tickets to the Fan Fest, though, because it's fully non-refundable. Uh, and we will actually take that and we will donate that to an animal charity. Jeff, I'm 100% with you. To me, it's a form, in a sense, it's a form of bullying. And because, you know, dogs 
Dogs can't speak. Technically, they can't. Uh, you can abuse dogs. The laws are so vague. I view it as a form of bullying. And people that put animals by the side of the – you hear about this. This happens every fucking day. People will – I remember a story, Jeff, where a guy dropped uh, a puppy off on I-95. And I believe the pup, somebody was able to rescue the puppy. But, I mean, you know, that that's a miracle that that was going to happen. You are a total fucking psycho, psychotic piece of shit if uh, if you're doing behaviors like this. I think you and like I know a psychotic piece of shit. That we're we know like quite a few, I think, as well. But I, I got to agree with Jeff. Uh, I, I would never want to associate with anybody that – just like, you know, look, a lot of the other social media. You're a rapist. I don't want to fucking know you. You're abusing animals. I don't want to fucking know you. So uh, I just think I think people that abuse animals to me, one of the lowest forms of life uh, forms possible. There was a great TV show on a decade, decade and a half ago called Dexter. And uh, as I watch this and a lot of days, I'll I'll unfortunately Facebook is you know, you, Facebook where you can't say the word fuck, but you could show a video of a dog being tortured for 20 minutes. Right. That's OK. So I remember there were they used to and it seems like it's gotten better, but they, they would show videos. You would see videos or, or photos or articles of people that fucking are abusing animals. And to me, again, there's clearly something wrong with somebody if they're doing that. I, I always wanted there to be a Dexter for animals, somebody who would take justice into their own hands because society wasn't going to and evening the score with these people, Jeff. Should I be saying that on a on a Sherman and Peabody award winning podcast? I will just say that uh, I would uh, if I was in charge of uh, Netflix or uh, Prime, I would green light that show uh, right? <laughs> involving someone that does, you know, sought out people that abused not just dogs. Cats, no, yeah, I don't care what animals. you know, what kind of fucking animal it is. Uh, I'm in favor of uh, uh, them fi- having somebody that uh, seeks these people out and uh, serves them with sweet retribution. You know, one thing uh, people always shit on Steven Segal. I've I've seen something uh, recently where uh, John Leguizamo was sh- was shitting on uh, Steven Segal, and, and you know, I, I would say 95 percent of it is probably deserved. But the one thing I will say is I, I love the the movie. I, I want to say was it Out for Justice? Where he's driving behind some guy that drops a box out of his car and say, Gal, uh, stops and looks in the box and it's a puppy. And, uh, so he, he sees the guy and of course he say, Gal, eh, we're going to see each other again, my friend. Um, I sound more like Rocky than I do, uh, so, uh, so uh, Steven say, Gal. But anyway, so he puts the puppy in his car and he takes care of, well, the end of the movie, he comes across the guy and he, uh, he kind of punches his lights out because he's Steven Seagal and he's got the puppy with him. The puppy walks over at the end of the movie. And lifts his leg and pisses on the guy. <laughs> that was like the greatest scene in any Steven Seagal movie, I think. So anyway, but uh, anyway, on that note, I will remind each of you, uh, except those of you that are fucking animal abusers, I won't remind any of you motherfuckers. Uh, and uh, you can stop listening uh, before episode 300 uh draws us to an end but uh, i will say that uh, we are a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast uh, network uh brian last is not a fan of animal abusers i'm gonna put that out there too so uh just that uh, for my co-host barry rose uh and uh somewhere in pa in philadelphia uh mourning the fact that uh, his team now has signed jalen hurts and will be in cap hell for the next five years and our producer sweet luke hippelman and i I'm Jeff Bowden, and my boy Gunny will always be in my hearts and always in my memories. Why? Because I'm not a fucking dirtbag animal abuser. I love dogs. What can I say? And until next week, we will see you next week. Barry, give them one more time a Chateau Atta. Chateau Atta, I weep for Magnotia. <laughs> <laughs>